Before we get started today, just a quick reminder on Buy Me A Coffee memberships. As you may already know, you can treat our office staff to one to five coffees a month, and in return you get exclusive benefits like special newsletters, behind-the-scenes content, direct access to Q&A with us, as well as a special shout-out here on our podcast. And today, I want to thank our Buy Me A Coffee members, Anderson da Silva, Kat Kramer, Fra, Peter Suffering, and Land, Mabel Shu, and someone who chose not to share their name. We are so pleased that the list is growing. Thank you very much for your support. And if you like to support independent journalism and hear your name on our podcast, just head over to Buy Me A Coffee and subscribe at one of our membership tiers. You can still offer a cup of coffee to give us the energy we need to cover a country as complex as Brazil, even if you cannot make a monthly commitment. We appreciate all your support. Click on buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian report to find out more. President Jair Bolsonaro is trailing in all presidential polls, and some electoral surveys show former President Lula likely to win in a first-round landslide. While the sample size is small, only three presidents have run for re-election since redemocratization, no one has ever failed in such an attempt since the right to run for a second consecutive term was introduced in 1998. Losing in the first round would be an even more historic defeat. So what is Bolsonaro doing? Well, he's throwing money at the problem. And that leads to other complications as the government tries to circumvent election laws and budgetary controls in an attempt to gather more electoral support from poorer voters. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. Election regulations in Brazil forbid sitting presidents, governors and mayors from creating or enhancing social policies in election years. And the rationale is pretty straightforward. The rules aim at leveling the playing field by preventing the use of the public purse directly for electoral gains. In the past, social policies were essentially used as a vote-for-cash scheme by politicians. Now, there are of course loopholes in the rules, and one of them is if the country is in a state of emergency. The Bolsonaro administration, with the help of party leaders in Congress, has tried to take advantage of that loophole. A constitutional amendment proposal that passed in the Senate last week would have Brazil enact a state of emergency through the end of the year when Bolsonaro's term expires. It would be a response to the ripple economic effects caused by the war in Ukraine. Fuel and food prices continue to soar in Brazil. Wages are shrinking and 77% of Brazilians are in debt. I mean, the economy is in a pretty bad shape all around. So the government wants to use almost $8 billion to finance stimulus for taxi drivers, truckers and small-scale farmers, as well as jack up its flagship cash transfer program Auxilio Brasil. 
this extra spending would poke even more holes in the federal spending cap. Now, the cap was created in 2016 as a sort of line of defense against overspending, but in recent years, it has been as effective as France's Maginot Line was in World War II. From an economic standpoint, there is a clear short-term upside to putting more money into people's hands. But the government's erratic strategy to tame inflation only sparks investor distrust. Brazil's five-year credit default swaps, commonly called the country's risk, are at their highest level since May 2020 when the pandemic was wrecking global markets. It also sets a fiscal bomb for years to come. Plus, the government moves poses an additional risk to the institution of democracy. And to talk about this, we welcome back to the podcast Beatriz Hay. She's a political scientist, an APSA congressional fellow, and a columnist for the Brazilian Report. Beatriz, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again. Beatriz, you wrote that this constitutional amendment proposal shows that Bolsonaro is taking a page from the playbook of authoritarian leaders like Hungary's Viktor Orban. That's a pretty harsh statement. Uh, what did you mean by that? Uh, well, I think that the role of the political analyst, uh, which in this case is myself, is still, I mean, one of the roles is to warn of possible, the worst possible scenarios, right? Um, and what happened last week was very similar to what uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban did in Hungary. He used legislative confusion to try to pass anti-democratic measures. And I think that's exactly what we witnessed with the approval of the constitutional amendment in the Senate. So it might seem like a harsh statement, but I prefer to um, be interpreted as harsh than to not warn that this is something that is happening and, and needs to be called out. And what specifically in that piece of legislation sounded the alarm bells in your head? There was one specific provision that you found particularly egregious. What was that? Well, to start with, the provision was just extremely vague, which is, it's never good. <laughs> it, it's, it didn't specify anything concrete in relation to um what exactly what sort of circumstance it would apply. So it would have essentially allowed the government to disregard any spending restriction set by electoral or budgetary regulations in order to respond to the state of emergency that the bill itself was creating. Um, what exactly does that look like in practice? We don't know. Uh, we do know that the Bolsonaro administration has a tendency to interpret the rule of law uh, as it sees fit, like as he wants to, right? Um, it has a tendency to interpret in a way that favors whatever strategy, whatever decision it wants to make. So I think having a provision that vague in months before the election with the president threatening to not recognize the election results is extremely problematic. Now, that provision was killed in the Senate. But when we look at the piece of legislation as a whole, I mean, just striking out that provision is not sufficient to make the amendment okay, is it? Um, so I think it's problematic in two ways. The first is that um, 
it is a desperate maneuver from a government that sees that it's losing in the polls. Um, so it has, there's no uh, public spiritness to this bill whatsoever. But more importantly, what worries me, uh, apart from the provision that, um, that I wrote the article about is the state of institutional deterioration. Just think for a second that this government is proposing with the, with the help of the opposition, by the way, um, to toss, uh, uh, rules that we have in place since the early 2000s to prevent politicians from spending before the elections. And he's doing that through a constitutional amendment proposal. It's, it's trying to change the constitution to win the elections. That's how bad this is. But I mean, there are no checks and balances from Congress at this moment. And like you said, the opposition massively supported the bill. Left-wing lawmakers said that they could not vote against social policies. And meanwhile, many experts say this bill can be litigated in the courts. But the relationship between the government and the Supreme Court is already strained as it is, and that would only put fuel to the fire. What should be done in order to provide some checks and balances to the government? I mean, how to remedy this situation? I have no idea. I think right now uh, that it might be go. It might go to the courts. I don't know if the courts will react in time to stop the bill from being implemented. And also, like just as a parenthesis, I have no idea how this bill is going to implement it. How the money is going to be distributed to taxi drivers, to uh, uh, truck drivers, truckers. To now they want the house wants to add Uber drivers. I don't know how this money is going to be distributed. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be any regulation or any accountability. I have, we have no idea how this is going to play out. Um, and I think during the vote in the Senate, there was one senator uh, speaking exactly to that. He was saying, like, uh, first, I, we haven't read the bill. Like, we haven't read the final version of the bill. And second, like, how, how are we even going to do this? Um, I, I don't know. I think this is part of the challenge that... Uh, if Bolsonaro is not reelected, that the next government will have to address is how to stop the state of institutional deterioration, um, which is it's is really bad right now. One argument that you make in your op-ed is the fact that everyone knows so little about the ins and outs of congressional work, lawmakers included, uh, that allows the government to pass legislation that will benefit itself in a very, very shady way. Can you explain what is happening here? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, um, so this this bill in the Senate, um, the bill's repertoire on Monday at 9.30 a.m. read a new version of the bill that was supposed to be voted on later that day on the floor. Um, that was the bill that contained the problematic provision that at the very last minute the opposition was able to take out. Um, <laughs> and the bill was voted uh, the next day. So every constitutional amendment proposal needs to be passed in each chamber by two rounds of votes, which usually takes time, right? Um, that all happened in the span of two days. The two votes. Um, so they, they profited from having a new text at the very last minute. Then by having several modifications to the text during the legislative process that was very short, 
again in the spin of two days to the point that a senator goes to the floor and says, are we even going to have a final version of this bill to read before we vote on it? I don't, yeah, it's, it's unprecedented. I don't want to say it's unprecedented because we have, like we see since 2016 that the legislative process has become bit by bit a bit more chaotic, but this level of uh, chaos, I want to say, it's unprecedented. And we see the same in the House. Uh, Speaker Artur Lira um, has a disregard for traditions, for the time of the legislative process. He even went as far as uh, changing the internal rule books of the House to curtail the power of the opposition and proposing amendments. Um, he has a disregard for the legislative process as institutionalized by the rule book. And we see this again and again. And as a, as a scholar of Congress, I am very worried uh, because the traditions and the rights, the, the institutions that guide the process are important for us to have some sort of predictability. Um, and that in the case of the vote last week, that was thrown thrown out the window. But why are we seeing this level of dysfunction? You mentioned that things have gotten worse since 2016, and that coincides with the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff. Is the impeachment the watershed moment when things kind of started to fall off the rails? And if so, why is that? Uh, because there is an institutional break there. Um, I think, I don't know if it's the watershed moment. Um, I do think that in the case of, um, okay, let me put it this way. I think focusing on the House right now, I think the powers of the Speaker are too strong in a way that, depending on the speaker you have, uh, it personalizes the legislative process to cater to the speaker, if that makes sense. So when Rodrigo Maia was speaker, um, he maintained some ser- some sort of opposition to the Bolsonaro government. And things seemed to function a little better because he was able to um, make the legislative institution work in terms of for instance, uh, when the pandemic happened and the government wanted uh, to send um, assistance of 200 highs, the opposition with Rodrigo Maia proposed to increase it. So you saw some back and forth, which is uh, something that we expect in the legislative process, right? Um, but then when you have a shift to Lida, who is uh, who sided with Bolsonaro, that back and forth ended um, because the presidents of the speaker are too strong. Um the process can be personalized to cater to the speaker. To me, when I look at the Cong- with Congress right now, especially focusing on the House, um, that's the main problem to me. We, we really need to rediscuss um, the way that uh, the agenda is set and the powers of the speaker. Um, but I don't know when we're going to be able to do that. Now, the legislative branch is getting stronger and stronger since 2016. Uh, has the monster gotten too big to be controlled? Or maybe can a new presidency under a new leader shift the balance of power? I mean, Lula could win the election in the first round landslide. Would that give him enough power to change the equilibrium in Brasilia? Well, yes and no. <laughs> um, so the, the, the executive branch is the center of power of Brazilian politics. And Bolsonaro has basically abdicated from his role in that uh, equilibrium. Uh, and that has forced... For instance, the Supreme Court 
to take action in a way that I think will bring problems in the future, as you and I have talked about. Um, so if Lula is elected and he decides, which I would be my guess that he would do, to re-enter um, as a force of power in Brazilian politics, that could be a good start. But the issue is that this Lira um, and Pacheco with Bolsonaro enacted institutional reforms uh, informally, which is kind of it's they created an informal institution that seems to be very much formalized right now, which is the, the secret budget. And so that's something that makes the legislative power stronger, more powerful uh, in a less institutionalized way, if that makes sense. I know that sounded very confusing because it is um, it is something it's an institution that is operating, but it is not through formal means. So even if Lula decides to re-enter um, this equilibrium as the center of power, it's going to have to deal with this legacy that um, Bolsonaro is leaving him with the help of Vida and Pacheco. Yeah, and the two could be re-elected as House Speaker and Senate President. Creating more problems. <laughs> yeah. So I guess you're not very optimistic about the outlook of Brazilian institutions. No, not at all. Um, this morning, um, I was uh, talking to a journalist who, who said that there are some people who think that um, analysts like myself are alarmists, that um, we think that there is too much deterioration while institutions are working. And my response was, well, we have a president that every day goes to the newspaper and tells journalists that he's not going to accept the results of any election that are unfavorable to him. That's not at least some level of institutional deterioration, deterioration, then I really don't know what is. And I mean, we have to recognize that Bolsonaro has always shown his true colors. I mean, you could not say you're surprised by what he's saying or doing. Yeah, he's been telling his plan all along. I mean, yeah, and, and, and I, I would I, like, look, if at the end of this process, I'm wrong. And I'm an alarmist. I prefer to take that blame, right, than to not say anything. You mentioned the secret budget, which is how we Brazilians call a set of opaque budgetary grants that allow lawmakers to pour money into their constituencies, right? Now, just for the sake of context, uh, this money really helps politicians enhance their profile with voters and it can skew local elections. So it is something I would expect lawmakers to try to keep at all costs. And at the same time, we have another problem with the fact that impeachment is no longer a taboo in Brazil. I mean, we have impeached two presidents in the past 30 years. That's two more than the U.S. has ever done. So if a new president tries to change that system, that could jeopardize his very survival, right? So that is the biggest question that... I have been struggling with for the last month is if I'm asked in a, let's assume that Bolsonaro loses the election and we have a turbulent transition, but Lula is able to take office. If I'm asked, how do you get rid of the secret budget? I still don't know. <laughs> not in a way that would not jeopardize Lula's political capital, which he's going to need uh, to face the entirety of problems that Brazilian uh, society is facing right now. Uh, so I think 
um, this is what we should, we scholars of Congress should be thinking about right now is exactly how we're going to remove the power from the rapporteur to send budgetary amendments in the way that he or she is doing. And I mean, not even a leader replacement would be interested in changing that, probably. I, I don't know. Uh, especially, and I think especially, if Artulita is still Speaker of the House, then I think we have a, re- re- a very big problem. Um, because any, any sort of reform that Lula tries to uh, move forward with is going to have to have the support of Nita, which, of course, he's not interested. He'll never be interested because that means he's losing power. But Beatriz, is there any silver lining among all this? Because, I mean, a lot of people listen to this podcast in their cars, and I wish we could say something to convince them not to drive themselves into a brick wall. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm, I'm going to cite Leonard Cohen here. Um, but, um, the idea that it is through the cracks that the light comes in, uh, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about too in these past month, just because I think our political system is so broken and our party system is so broken that I see more possibilities for change, um, than I see, for instance, here in the U.S. So I think that's a silver lining. Um, our fragmented, non-programmatic, broken party system could be our salvation. In, in what way? In a way that it opens more possibilities for change, right? Uh, Bolsonaro is not backed up by a strong party, and that's a blessing. Uh, can you imagine if he had the backing of a party such as the GOP here in the U.S.? Um, so the, the extent to which he can do damage, especially during the transition, might be contained by that lack of strong partisan institutional support. And I also think the fact that we have a football World Cup in November and December will help this. Because voters are already uninterested in the ins and outs of the transition period between the election and the inauguration of the next government. Now, with the World Cup, especially now that Brazil comes with solid chances of winning the whole thing, it might be harder to muster support for a power grab or anything of the sort. Yeah. And I mean, like, he's going to, if he doesn't try to stop the election from happening, he will try to contest the results and there will be violence and don't get me wrong i'm very worried but the extent to which he can sustain that over longer for a longer period of time with the lack of a political party behind of like a support of the political party and um a world cup happening that that creates some problems for him so there you go we managed to find the silver lining you see Well, look, I'm always looking for silver linings, and I do think that uh, I'm I'm optimistic, um, cautiously optimistic, if we're able to go back to a moment in Brazilian history that we can stop discussing whether a coup or not is going to happen. I think if we get to that point, that's a win. Beatriz, thanks a lot for being with us. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Beatriz Hayes, a political scientist, an APSA Congressional Fellow, and a columnist for the Brazilian Report. You can read her columns at Brazilian.report. 
And if you like Explaining Brazil, please give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It takes only a second and it will help us reach a broader audience. Or better yet, you can sign up for the Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We have a subscription-based business model and your subscriptions fuel our journalism and keep us going and growing. If you are already a subscriber, then you can give us some extra support by filling our coffee mugs with donations on Buy Me A Coffee. This membership program offers special perks like behind-the-scenes content and exclusive newsletters. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening. And Explaining Brazil will be back next week. Música